Good morning, and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumzer, and today we're going to be speaking with Jason Roberts, who's the Global Head of Technology and Analytics for Randstad SourceRite. Jason, how are you? Doing well, John. How are you? Great. Would you take a moment and introduce yourself to uh, the audience and tell them how you got where you are? Oh, gosh. Yes, I will. Um, so, hi, all. I'm Jason Roberts. I, uh, I'm responsible for uh, technology and analytics at Runset Source, right? What that means is that uh, for our customers that, uh, that we do enterprise services for, so think of a recruitment process outsourcing or being the managed service provider or MSP for a customer, um, I provide the, uh, the technology stack that enables all of that. So that's, that means that uh, we roll out technology suites, including uh, bot-based uh, AI sourcers, and we've got uh, a CRM, of course, and interview management tools, interview scheduling tools, and um, even digital interviewing things. All of that we do uh, for 250 customers around the world. So I, I don't think that um, that most people really understand that at the heart of the RPO business is this this providing technical capability that you do. Um, do you think it's a surprise to people? Um, you know, I think when it depends on the generation of RPOs. So early RPO way back was about um, just lifting and shifting your processes and giving it to someone else that can do it cheaper than you can. And um, the, in kind of the current generation, uh, generation three or four of RPO that we're on now, um, people are looking for some, uh, some value add that they didn't have in the past. So they want us to bring technologies and processes and things that, that allow us to be more effective at, at uh, saving time and money. But uh, before, when it was just strictly a cost play, um, now companies are looking to, uh, to RPOs as sort of an efficiency play as well. So trying to, to focus in on getting their time to fill down in a number that, uh, that's important. We had one of our huge enterprise customers. They hire a lot of engineering and, and uh, software development talent. And uh, they had a goal of getting their, their average time to fill from 70 days to 40. And 40 days for engineering hires is pretty hard uh, on a consistent basis. And uh, so they, they actually hired us to do that. Uh, they were, their big focus was efficiency because they felt like the opportunity cost for those open seats was too high and, uh, and they were driving different things. So they, they need, we need technology to make that happen. Technology is faster. It allows us to do things at speed um, at, a, at a lower cost. That's that's interesting. I just uh, you know maybe 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 I'm just an old fogey, um, uh, but but I but I don't really um, go instantaneously. Oh, RPO. That means that I'm going to be getting technical capability if I'm buying from an RPO. So that's that's interesting. Ronstadt is a yep. big place. What 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 else does the company do besides provide technology in an RPO setting? So. Um, uh, yeah, RPO is the, the source right piece of their business and, uh, and enterprise services is actually a, a small percentage of what we do. Um, the, we're a large company. We're $25 billion-ish dollars annually. 
Um, and the primary focus of Ronstadt is actually on staffing. So putting contract workers to, to work every day. In North America, there's 100,000 people working for us at any given time. Um, I've heard the statistic that we are the uh, second largest em uh, non-government employer in the world. Really? Yes. Wow, that's 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 a big, complicated thing. You ought to charge more. Twenty-five billion doesn't seem like much. Um, <laughs> you know, I think you're right. Maybe I'll, I'll work on that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Please get back to me on that, would yeah. you? <laughs> so you know, we've talked about about AI over over the years, and and you know, I'm studying it pretty closely. I've just finished this massive wave of I interviewed 110 companies to, to get ready for this next report. And um, um, I wonder, you've been studying how technology adoption works. Um, and so the, it's, it's a very complimentary thing. What have, you, what have you been learning about technology adoption in the study? Oh, man, we only have a half hour here. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll, what I'll say is... Um, I've learned something about recruiter behavior, right? So um, it's really easy to say, hey, we, we rolled out this new process and recruiters don't use it because it's not what they're used to. So um, they, uh, they may be some level of troglodyte or something like that, but that's really not the case. Um, recruiters, they make their living. They, they reach their goals within a, within a company. Um, if they're on the agent side, agency side of staffing a recruiter, the, the way that they, they make their living period is based on filling a wreck as quickly and efficiently as possible. If a technology shows and proves to them early on that it will be efficient, then, um, then they use it. But if it doesn't, then, then they, they struggle with it. And if, you, if it's based on a promise, like uh, we wrestled a little bit uh, with CRMs, for example. CRMs are tough because it's the promise of efficiency later. If you put your candidate information in now, when you need them later, they'll be available to you versus having to, to rely on searching uh, job boards or LinkedIn that, uh, that next day to find fresh new candidates. Well, they're having to do work today with a promise of something later, and we struggled with people doing that. Other technologies like Text Recruit, for example, was adopted really widely for us, and we basically gave them the capability to connect with candidates in a much faster and more efficient way. It's right there on their desk, desktop. It's ever present as a, as a uh, Chrome extension um, and feels integrated into everything they do. So they adopted it really well. It, um, they're like water. They go to the path of least resistance all the time. And um, so, for example, our AI sourcer model that we ultimately rolled out um, and th that we have active today is uh, we is one where we don't require much of recruiters. We go in, we extract job descriptions from from an open job. We parse those those job descriptions. We reach out to the recruiter to say, "Here's what we're looking for. This is what looks like it was important to you. Do you agree?" If they if they don't respond within two days, we just go, and we don't require them to do any extra work. We go and we find candidates, and we submit them in a process that's very normal to them, just like working with a normal sourcer via email. We email a candidate that has been fully, uh, that has been matched, 
uh, and screened by a bot and is qualified, interested, and available for their, their job, it shows up in their email just like if they're working with a, a uh, sorcerer on their team or uh, a third-party recruiter might, but it's all AI-driven. And the way that we do it is we make it feel like their normal process, and we make it something that, that is giving them instant gratification. Here's a candidate that's ready, has already said they're interested in this job, and meets my basic qualifications today. So those, that's the, the key to adoption to me is showing immediate value um, versus the promise of value down the road when it comes to technology. That's that's really interesting. So so not everything's got immediate value, and um, many of the things that will um, ultimately improve the quality of the recruiting process do sort of the opposite. They make work harder, or they make work take longer. Um, so so I can see how the, this view of adoption gets you faster adoption of tools that make the current way of recruiting go faster um, or, um, yeah, yeah, go faster, basically, or be cheaper. Um, but, you know, recruiting has this 50% failure problem, right? The hiring manager thinks exactly. the, the – the, the decision was a mistake 18 months after it's made, um, and and you can't fix that by going faster. So so how do you think you get stuff adopted that addresses the quality issue? Oh, that's an existential question. Um, oh no, it isn't. So it's whether quality, or not there's going to be a recruiting business <laughs> kind of question. Well, not necessarily. Quality is tough in that. Um, it gets down to the decision-making process. We we did an experiment once where um, we tried recruiting people without any interviews and uh, just having us select candidates based on assessments and performance against those assessments because there's, there's actually no evidence that interviews work. In fact, if you look at interview failure rate, that 50% is based on a hiring manager making a decision following an interview. So, they have, if there's a 50% failure rate at 18 uh, at 18 months, then they might as well flip a coin on whether or not, not they hire somebody, right? right. It's 50-50. There's, there's no value in their, in their conversation. So we actually tried this once where we pull out the, the interviews and the hiring managers just could not wrap their heads around it. Um, they lost their, their minds about it. So we, we didn't see good adoption on it. it, it it was a process that people weren't willing to do, um, but I think I think that's one one option is to rely on some proven assessments that are that are out there. And I think in the um, in the lower skill jobs, the high volume, low skill jobs, your retail, um, even call center, uh, maybe even some manufacturing jobs where your your floor requirements are things like you can lift 50 pounds and be on, stand on your feet for X number of hours. Um, for those sorts of jobs, I'm not sure the interviews matter at all. I think it's just a matter of putting people into the job and seeing if they work out and having a, an exit strategy if they don't. But, um, but yeah, I think assessment is probably the, the primary key for, for how you do that. And we're seeing companies start to embrace assessments more right now. So, you know, we're, we're sort of invested in them with, uh, with things like Pymetrics. That where we, we want to use those, and Hacker Rank is a place where um, our investment fund is, has placed a bet. Um, but there are other places 
uh, where we're seeing like Montage just had a really interesting merger um, with Shaker, which is a uh, which is an assessment firm, and that's that's really interesting. They had that um, real time job preview. They are they have a they have a full assessment suite. So combining the uh, the digital interviewing and interview management technology that Montage provides with an assessment model um, is interesting. And we're seeing more and more of our customers ask for assessments. Um, and we're starting to see assessments evolve past what they've been historically. They've, they've historically been pretty bad, I've got to say, where you, know, you, you have to stop in the middle of your process and have somebody take an hour and a half long uh, assessment that's, that a PhD has said, yeah, this is going to give you a, a, a good candidate. Well, not many people want to take an hour and a half assessment. So they've got those things down to uh, sub-15 minutes in, in many cases. So it's more usable at this point. Uh, it's an interesting. It's an interesting question. Um, so, so I, I'm following that area extremely closely, and and the the energy seems to be directed towards making the fastest, cheapest possible assessment tool. But the 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 point about um, how assessment actually works is. Assessments don't tell the truth about anything. Assessments are um, an answer to a set of questions that um, match a framework. And the only way that that's actually useful is if everybody in the organization speaks the same language about people, right? And so the reason that the reason that the the big old-fashioned assessment projects were um, rarefied is. You had to have trainers on site who taught everybody how to make decisions using the assessments. Um, and that tends to get left out of these SAS model assessment tools. So, so I wonder if you've thought about that. Yeah. We, so I'll give you an example of a previous assessment model. And we had a, a, we have a massive brand, well-known company that um, we, we started working for. And they, they gave us all their recruiting. So anytime you want to get hired for this company and it's a destination point for many, many people, um, you have to go through us. And ultimately, we, were, we would be the, uh, the utilizers of an assessment that they had already sort of decided upon when we, when we sort of were in the process of taking over for them. And um, <clears throat> what we learned was this assessment took an hour. And we were losing three quarters of the candidates. The, the people that we looked at and said we're good, we did an initial screen with them, we said right on, and we would put them through the assessment. And we were losing half to three quarters of the candidates, depending on the job that we were looking at, um, because of the assessment. It was it was brutal. Um, made it nearly impossible to, to fill these these jobs. So I think faster is ultimately important. Um, the decision making process I think feels okay to me. Um, I don't. There, there's some training required based on this, but the way that we normally see it is as almost uh, it's not necessarily a knockout, but it's, it's a pretty heavy weighting so that the, uh, the candidates who have done well in the assessment float to the top and the hiring managers spend more time and attention looking at those. And then there's more qualitative information inside of those assessments. So there's some pieces in there that are, you know, quantitative and we decide, whether a person is going to be, be able to do the job. There's also qualitative in there that the hiring managers typically use in order to sort of um, 
make their make their judgments. People floated to the top based on quantitative, and the hiring managers did go have gone through trainings that in the places where we we're engaged, um, mainly just to say it's it's almost like when the training that you get when you go through a disc survey, where you say, all right, if, if there's a person who's a who's a high D and and they balance with a person who's a high I and um, <laughs> those sorts of things you you learn about. Um, the assessment model, there's typically a training delivered with it. Now, how much the hiring managers utilize that, ultimately, I'm not, I'm not sure. But um, I think it's it's a conundrum for us. It's a quandary that we'll have to wrestle with over time. I'm, I'm happy to see more people interested in using assessment because I think interviews are proving to be ineffective in this model. Um, I mean, for that matter, I think the resume doesn't do a very good job for us, right? So we're matching a lot of these things on resume, based on resumes. Job descriptions are terrible. One of our key learnings in AI, when I first did a, when we first built out kind of a fully automated thing where we take the job descriptions and do matching against those job descriptions, um, we, we had pretty poor results because the job descriptions that were coming across were so awful. Um, and uh, we had to insert a layer of human to do a job description scrub. And that's actually our, our next level of build is automated job description scrubbing um, in order, based on the information that we have. So we, those things are bad. If, if you sit down and if you look at what a resume, job description is sort of the hopes and dreams of the hiring manager. A resume is uh, everything I want you to know about me and, and then some. So we're both, you know, both sides of that, that uh, puzzle are sort of lying to each other to some degree. And then you sit in an interview and um, you hope to get enough truth out of each party in order to make some sort of decision. Um, there's, there's challenges in the, in the whole process. If you look at real estate, for example, real estate is another brokerage model like this, right? So in recruiting where we are brokers, uh, people who need jobs versus uh, people who uh, have jobs that they need to build and we help as recruiters in this industry to, to broker those deals real estate's one where we get more verified information right there's someone who who goes out and verifies uh, via an inspection that the house is what they say it is and that there are no surprises so how do we verify that there are no surprises about a job and how do we verify that there are no surprises about a person i, I don't know if we've come up with with that model like the inspector model for uh, for recruiting yet well so so i've seen a thousand schemes but you know that this this is an interesting question that that you can't really do justice to at the time frame but but the premise that that the entire um brokerage is based on deceit is something that that makes me pretty uncomfortable, right? I, 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 I tend to think that you can only get so much done in, in the first impression, and um, you have to have I discovery. That, I wouldn't say that it's based on deceit. I think it's based on everyone putting their best foot forward, which isn't their full, uh, the, the full picture necessarily. So I think everyone wants, no one wants to go in and lie, but there are certainly things that, that everyone omits from the conversation. Yeah, we, we, could go round, we could go round and round about that. I, 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 I will respectfully 
suggest that that what you just said is that people lie, and I'm not sure that that's a good way to characterize it. Um, um, but anyhow, it doesn't really matter because because you can you can do all of this stuff with people. The thing about jobs in the 21st century is that they're never going to be something that you can pin down unless it's the kind of job that's about to be automated, right? You can get very precise about job requirements. Um, and to the extent that you can get really precise about job requirements, it's better to have a machine do it. <laughs> and, and so, so the, the place where recruiting is going to matter is always going to be a place where there's fuzziness on both sides of the equation because the job isn't going to be exactly what's described because it's somebody's guess. And, and the resume isn't going to be exactly relevant because it's somebody's guess about somebody's guess, you know? And so, so I'm not sure you get there with a increasing accuracy view of the of the problem. There may there may be something different there. I, I don't know. What do you think? Um, I think you get there with increasing information, perhaps. So, for example, I, I don't think the resume is complete. Um, there are things that recruiters do that that um, machines typically don't do. So uh-huh. recruiters will ask. What a, what a person's priorities are, right? Um, what what makes you want? In, what would make you interested in changing jobs? Is it more time with your family? Do you uh, do you, are you motivated by money? Are you are you looking for the ne- uh, next step in your career? So that if you're a manager, you're only interested in director level jobs. So recruiters ask those sorts of questions. They ask questions about sort of hopes and dreams, like where do you want to be in in uh, in five years? You know, can can this thing get you to that place? What What is your desired path in, in this world? So recruiters ask those things, and good recruiters will help to align jobs with aspirations. But profiles, even LinkedIn, who I think has an opportunity to do this, um, doesn't ask about a person's hopes and dreams. It asks about the reality of, of their current situation. Um, so I, I think that recruiters... <laughs> It's funny. All of our matching right now is based on uh, based on their, a person's current job. So I need a manager of distribution. So I'm going to search for managers of distribution, and whoever whoever's resume matches this manager of distribution the best. But we don't have a way necessarily of searching for the person whose next job is supposed to be a manager of distribution. We don't have a way a good way of people laying out what they hope their career path is, so that we can make those alignments. And I, I think those are the places where um, recruiters do a good job today, better than machines, and where I think machines ultimately will have to go. That's really interesting. So, so in your um, survey, in your study, you um, discovered that 65% of employees are getting additional training outside of work. Um, is that a win yeah. for an employer, or is that a or is that a forecast of higher turnover for everybody? I, I think it's a win for an employer if they can capture the interest of those people, right? So those people are taking the initiative to better themselves. So these are these are your human resources that that you ostensibly have first right of refusal on, right? So you have the opportunity if you can if you know that people are are gaining these skills and can help them find a place to utilize those skills, you get to go first in offering them something of value and a role where they can use those things. Um, Reed Hoffman's book, The Alliance, talks about sort of the idea that 
people stick with you for, for shorter periods of time now within the company. Um, and it's as long as you can help them continue building uh, what they want to build uh, in themselves, right? So if you can see uh, a person is uh, receiving training on Ruby development, for example, and uh, you have a Ruby open role, then you have the first opportunity to go for that. I've got somebody on my team, Leslie, who, um, who I just think the world of. Um, she was a recruiting manager, but she had a deep interest in uh, reporting and analytics and had an aptitude for it. So she, uh, she started doing work in that area. Um, we paired her up with our lead data scientist. She's picked up skills in SQL. She took, the, took point on probably our largest um, reporting rollout for any customer we've ever done. But it started with an interest and aptitude and uh, have uh, a conversation that we had sitting over a meal one day and, and she said, this is really what I want to do. I said, okay, well, let's find a way to make that happen. And she had already taken some of the trainings on her own. We just opened the door for, for her to apply those skills. That's awesome. And, and so, and so the, um, the survey suggests that 65% of employees are doing that? That's, that sounds like a great deal for, for employers. If you think about how that normally works, uh, and maybe that, that points to a need for a change in, in the way L&D works. Right. But if the way it normally works is an employer would pay for you to take the, the training that they want you to take. What that's saying is there are people out there gathering training and ostensibly getting some sort of um, micro degrees or, or certificates or something saying, I completed this thing, um, completing their PMP certification. Like I, I went and got uh, certified as a project management professional um, earlier in my career. And uh, I immediately started looking for places where I could apply that, right? So if you have a way of capturing that for employees to raise their hand and say, hey, look at me, I just did this thing. What can I do that's different now? Um, I think that's great for employees, right? You get ever increasingly valuable people doing work for you. That's a good deal. That's, that's interesting. So um, if there's one takeaway from the research, what would it be? So, um, well, back to the upskilling piece. I, I don't know if this is the one takeaway from the research. We, we sort of go with our top 10 pieces, but since you were discussing up, upskilling, um, there is, there is a, uh, an effort as, as you offer upskilling opportunities, um, you can avoid the expense of onboarding new hires, right? So you can avoid that, that cost. That's a, that's a valuable piece. Um, the other thing that we're seeing that goes along with this people wanting to better themselves and, you know, staying in your role long enough to, that for them to get, gather that skill and apply that skill in a piece of work um, <clears throat> is we're seeing the rise of uh, gig workers, right? So gig work is continuing to expand. Um, we're seeing it in a very interesting distribution where uh, at the very bottom of the, the skill ladder, we're seeing a lot of gig work. Um, at the very top of the skill ladder, the, the highest end consulting uh, work, we're seeing it there. And then sort of that middle piece is a little bit more skinny. So your, your software developers, right? So your software, mid-career software developer, you would see less gig work than you would um, lower no-skill workers. 
um, on the on the bottom end. So we are seeing a great deal of growth, and it, that's helping companies be more flexible. So as you're seeing people look at gigs, um, there's an interest in uh, gathering a skill, and we talked about something with one of our customers. Um, I, I feel like I need to give them credit. It was Newell Rubbermaid. They had an internal gig model where you could, uh, they would put up short-term assignments um, and allow people to apply to do those gigs internally as a, as a rotation, which sounded like a genius idea. You get people involved and, and they know, hey, this is a year and a half or two year gig. And uh, it, the goal is for, for somebody to achieve a specific uh, outcome. But as a part of that, here are the skills that you'll pick up. It's pretty smart, I thought. Yeah, that's awesome. So so it's been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Would you mind reintroducing yourself and tell people how they can get a hold of you if they like? Yeah, so um, again, Jason Roberts. I'm uh, with Ronstead SourceWrite. Um, you can find me on just about any social media at JazzRobert, J-A-S-R-O-B-E-R. So you can find me on the Twitters, on the um, on Instagram, um, you can find me there on Facebook and on LinkedIn. If you just drop J A S R O B E R on there, um, you can find me there. And then, of course, um, the study you were just talking about, which I think is is interesting, it's available for free for anybody that wants it. Um, you can get to the Talent Trends Report at RonstadSourceRight.com. So Ronstead Sourcewrite all together, no hyphens or anything, just RonstadSourceWrite.com. And you can get that thing, and that's the uh, Talent Trends Report. We do that every year, and uh, this year we added uh, candidate information. So we've historically always done employer talent trends, and this time we asked similar questions of candidates and then juxtaposed those answers. So it provided a really interesting layer of information that, uh, that I've enjoyed this year along the way. Fantastic. I want to thank you for taking the time to do this. It's been great having you on. You've been listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations, and we've been talking with Jason Roberts, who's the Global Head of Technology and Analytics for Ronstadt SourceRight. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you back here next week, and thanks again, Jason, for doing this. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.